Hello guys, I'm Yitzel, and today I will be discussing um, affirmative action and other issues surrounding it, and I'll be featuring an organization that works to support affirmative action and that embodies solidarity, praxis, and reimagination in the sociological um, context. So I'm going to start off by describing what affirmative action was in the sense of when it was first um, enacted in 1965. Everybody knows that, well, it's relatively common knowledge that LBJ um, signed the Civil Rights Act in 1964 and the Voting Rights Act in 1965. In addition to that, though well, I think it was part of it as well, it was um, Executive Order 11246 in 1965 that mandated that federal government contractors take affirmative action to ensure that applicants are employed and that employees are treated during employment without regard to their race, creed, color, or national origin. So, essentially this meant that they could not be discriminated on the basis of race, etc., right? And then initially, okay, well, two years later, um, the like the basis of sex was added as well for women, so that just kind of meant that there there couldn't be any sex-based discrimination. But it's important that it wasn't originally um, part of the the order or the mandate at first. So, yeah, I mean, it was kind of interesting to have that passed in 1965 when the ERA's been kind of the Equal Rights Amendment. Sorry, I should have specified has been floating and been um widely controversial since the 1920s but johnson's goal was initially to compensate for past discrimination in like the workplace and in the education systems so that that was the goal of the um, affirmative action bill i guess or of his executive order that year i think today a lot of more people are familiar with affirmative action in the educational context or I guess more controversially in the context of college admissions given the recent heat of cases over um, affirmative action. But I'm gonna start by giving the definition of affirmative action by Cornell Law School. They define it as a set of procedures designed to, number one, eliminate unlawful discrimination among applicants and remedy the results of prior discrimination and prevent such discrimination in the future. And these applicants may be seeking admission to an educational program or looking for professional employment. And employers who contract with the government or who otherwise receive federal funds are required to document their affirmative action practices and metrics. Affirmative action is also a remedy under the Civil Rights Act of 1964, where a court finds that an employer has intentionally engaged in discriminatory, discriminatory practices. This was, this was taken straight from Cornell Law School. Um, kind of just breaks down what affirmative action is from an accredited university. And I'm going to break it down now. Well, I'm going to give the ACLU definition of affirmative action in the educational standpoint. Race-conscious policies such as affirmative action aim to address racial discrimination by recognizing and responding to the structural barriers that have denied underrepresented students access to higher education. Race-conscious admissions practices allow universities to consider a student's race as one factor in the admissions process in order to help create a diverse student body that enriches the educational experiences of all students. That was also taken directly from the ACLU website. Um, and so it gave, I think it gives a really good, like, um, a really good overview of what affirmative action is, but I don't think it dives into more of like the controversies behind it and why people find it so controversial, like, I guess, okay, that was redundant, but why people are so against it. And like, the main thing is like, oh, it's just setting up quotas, but that's been dismantled a lot or various times because like the quotas are illegal. And it's been tested at the Supreme Court. I mean, it's, it's been put up against the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court has still held it. So now I think I'm going to set some context with some court cases. So I'm going to start off. Well, um, yeah, I'm going to start off with the I'm going to go back 
pretty far. The 1931 Lemon Grove incident. So the 1931 Lemon Grove incident um, occurred in San Diego County. So right here in California. And well, okay, the official case name was Roberta Alvarez versus the Board of Trustees of lemon in the lemon grove and what occurred was is that mexican students were barred from entering their own school so i believe it was the principal he was acting in the interest of the school trustees and he declared that the mexican students did not belong at the school and that he told the students they had to enter a two-story building specially built for the mexican kids and the school board they kind of expected the mexican families and the kids to act silent and kind of just be obedient and let it roll over but these mexican parents united and they received legal assistance from the mexican consulate because they got in touch with them and and the ultimate ruling was that the Superior Court of San Diego County ruled that the school board's attempt to segregate the Mexican school children violated California state law because ethnic Mexicans were considered white under California Ed Code. So that kind of set like a really landmark, um, like a very landmark precedent for the next case I'm going to talk about, which is the 1947 Mendez versus Westminster case. That's also right here in California. This was a really big precursor to the Brown versus Board of Education, but not many people know about Mendez versus Westminster. But um, it's called in this case, there were kids that were told um, they had to go to a school designed just for Mexican children, just like um, they were in the Lemon Grove incident. But they these um, parents did not claim the base of racial discrimination because Mexicans were legally white. And that was the very important precedent set forth by the Lemon Grove incident. And they claimed discrimination on, well, the the parents in Mendez versus Westminster, they claimed the discrimination on ancestry and grounds of language deficiency that denied children their 14th Amendment rights. And Thurgood Marshall, I love Thurgood Marshall, he represented Sylvia Brown, one of the students. In the case in 1946, Judge McCormick ruled in favor of the students because the holistic consequences of segregation were damaging to Mexican students. So that means like other factors, psychological, social, etc., and then it was challenged. It was brought to the Court of Appeals and, well, okay, it was brought to Court of Appeals by the school board, not surprising, in 1947. And, well, the Court of Appeals upheld Cormick's original decision from a year prior. And so that kind of leads up to 1954, Board of Education, oh, well, Brown, sorry, 1954, Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. And this really set the precedent that public schools cannot discriminate against students of color by sending them to an institution that services um, other minority students. And it set the stage for modern affirmative action. And it really set a precedent for the civil rights movement and desegregation in general. Actually, three years later, in 1957, Little Rock Nine was one of the first schools um, to be desegregated or to be integrated, rather. And Little Rock Nine occurred in Arkansas at Central High School. Um, they were a group of, well, nine students who were, God, they were um, harassed, constantly threatened. There were bombs thrown at their houses. They underwent various hate crimes. And I do believe that Eisenhower um, had to... He had to call upon marshals to protect these students. Um, but that was very, like, that was a very big president as well. And many of them did graduate, actually. And also Ruby Bridges, she was, she was very tiny. She was the first, she was the first or second grader. I, I believe so, from what I can remember. But those were really fall right, right after Brown for Sport of Education. Oh, yeah. And in the... Um, Little Rock Nine case, the governor, oh God, Governor Orville Falvis, he was like, eight, he was t 
total segregationist, white supremacist, and it did not help with their, obviously it didn't help their situation, but they quite literally had the odds against them with everything. And even when, I remember, because I read um, Melba Petalobiles, I read her um, bio- autobiography, uh, Warriors Don't Cry. I read it in seventh grade, then I read it, I think, I believe last year, but I still remember quite a bit. Um, if I can recall correctly, she when she went up to the north, to visit some family she like she was detailing how her experiences instead of just straight overt racism it was more microaggressions when she went up to the north which is unfortunately the case because people see the north as kind of this glaring aspect even now like even in i guess i quote socially progressive areas there's still a lot of microaggressions and less blatant i call it closet racist but but less blatant racist things in your face that it kind of goes more unnoticed but sorry, has a little tension tea. Okay, so now this one's way more recent, but this is the infamous 2016 Fisher versus University of Texas. It was based in Texas. So this is quite the uh, controversy in Texas. But basically, um, this girl—it was a white woman. Her her last name is Fisher, sir. Yeah, she's Fisher. She claimed she was denied admission in 2008 on the grounds that consideration of her race disadvantaged her and her white friends. <laughs> um, so the, iron- the irony lies in the fact that she was included in one of the groups that affirmative action benefits the most. Well, she is included in one of the groups because affirmative action benefits white women like disproportionately. But... Um, well, I guess I, guess I should contextualize the Texas admission system a little bit more. The Texas, the Texas, well, at least at the time, okay, the Texas admission system guaranteed that if a student was in the top 10%, that they were guaranteed admission to the University of Texas. And if not, then they use an academic index and a holistic review that included race, which is what Miss Fisher lost her sanity over, I guess. Um, and, well, she took it to the court. And the court upheld Texas's decision to uphold race-conscious admissions. Wow. Shocker. And then, okay, that wasn't the most recent one. I, I'm mistaken. I'm sorry. But then there was the, the very, oh, God, this one was just a few months ago. It was, I think it was on a Halloween, actually. It was the 2022 stu- Students for Fair Admission versus the President and Fellows of Harvard and the 2022 um, SFFA, the Students for Fair Admissions. Um, versus the University of North Carolina. So, okay, I should probably preface both of these cases. They were both funded and really pushed by this guy named Ed Bloom. And Ed Bloom, he had a big role in the Fisher case I just talked about from 2016. He um, he was against, he's an anti-civil rights activist. He, he's, his work, his racist work goes back decades. But, um... What's it called? The ultimate verdict in the 2022 case, or the ultimate, like, cons- the the message that came from that was that in the Harvard case, that Harvard did not intentionally discriminate against Asian Americans, because that was their claim. Um, yeah, I guess. I don't know. It was kind of, it's, when you look at of many, a multitude of different factors, to me, it, just, it personally doesn't make sense. But I guess that's why I'm doing my practice on this, to look deeper into everything. But I guess next I, I'm going to segue into racism and in college admissions. Well, okay, racism in the college admissions process in, in standardized testings so like the SAT, the ACT, PSAT even. Well, I guess that's included under SAT, but just standardized testing in general and how, how those have exacerbated barriers or created even more for people of color and made it harder rather than creating an equal opportunity.
So now on to racist beginnings of standardized tests. Wow. Carl Brigham and the SAT. <sighs> so um, Carl Brigham, he was an Anglo-Saxon immigrant. Um, he was also surprised in a notorious eugenicist who wrote, I quote, African-Americans were on the low end of the racial, ethnic, or cultural spectrum. So originally he developed an aptitude test for, ar- for the army during World War I to distinguish different groups and et cetera, et cetera. Eventually, uh, he was funded by College Board. He was commissioned by them and was crucial in the development of the SAT. Basically, he kind of made it. And the first SAT was actually administered in 1926. And I quote, he said the SAT or his type of testing, his testing methods would prevent, I quote, the infiltration of white blood. Um, wow. <laughs> so that was that is the literal creator of the SAT. It was initially created to um, like literally just exacerbate every single racial barrier and literally as a weapon of white supremacy. So I don't think I need I don't think other evidence as a any anything overt is needed after that but yeah that was carl brigham he uh oh yes i believe also standardized testing was used in ivy admissions process to um limit the amount of jews or jewish people that entered that or that were accepted so now generational and sat demographics whoo okay so typically black and latino students score lower on the math section and these are from College Board's own statistics. I pulled these from the 2022 SAT suite thing. They have this, like, it's this whole collection of their, um, sati- like, well, statistics, like, mean scores by race, ethnicity, median income, et cetera, et cetera. So the average SAT score for a Latino is 964. Keep in mind, the max is 1600. For black students, it's 926. For white kids, it is a 1098. So it is true, Latinos and black students, they do score lower. And I know I said it in the math section, but let me just peek over it. Okay, so in the math section, Latinos scored an average of 473 out of, I believe it's over 600. Um, And then black students scored a 452, yep, in the math section. And 47% of Latinos did not meet benchmarks in either math or English. Um, what's it called? And 54% did not for black students. That that's that's kind of that's kind of insane. Wow. Whew. Hmm. And the it goes well okay, for two or more races for mixed, it the average score was an eleven oh two. And the for white students the uh, oh yeah we repeated for white students and then for native hawaiian or other pacific islanders it was 945 wow so yeah i think it's pretty evident the impact or not the impact i guess but the 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 very explicit bias an inherent bias against students of color, especially given the nature it was created for that I just went over. And now socioeconomic income. <sighs> okay, let's, let's, get, okay, so by the lowest quintile, yet again, still from the college, the most recent college war statistics, this is the average family income 
I mean, the lowest family income between zero and $51,000-ish, these students scored an average of a 914. And 58% of these students did not meet benchmarks in either math or English. And then in the second lowest quintile between 51.5, just basically 52,000 to about 67,000, the average score was a 965. And 46% of students did not meet either benchmark. In the middle quintile from 67,000 to about 84,000, the average score or the mean score was a 1,007 and 37% of students in this category did not pass, I mean, did not meet either benchmark. In the second highest quintile, the average score was a 1059 when 27% um, of students did not meet either benchmark. And in the highest quintile, which is making over um, about $110,000 as median family income, the average score was, a, was an 1161, and only 14% of students did not meet either benchmark. So if you compare the highest quintile of over $110,000 with only 14% of students not meeting either benchmark to the lowest quintile, <laughs> missing 58%, um, there's definitely a class bias, just just, stri just strictly examining this this data, data, whatever. There is like the the bias is just it's it's glaring at you. You can you physically cannot deny the impacts of socioeconomic status or of race just by going off reading off the average scores. Um, so now moving on to graduation. Oh, so I guess I should contextualize a little bit too. It's just for the SAT specifically. I've ranted on this before when I've taken. Because I took AP World last year, and to be honest, it was a little bit of disaster for me personally. But anyways, for the SAT, a lot of students, it's it's kind of, in my mind, I think of it as a pay-to-win test almost. Because the more you have, the more time you have to study, the, 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 the obvious better score you get. And to be honest, it's not really about, like, testing what you already know. It's, for me, it's more like just test, like, kind of just testing your your test taking skills i guess it's measuring your test taking skills there you go because on my own score report nobody really knows my score but on my own score report it told me i needed to work on like very basic well basic for me algebra skills when i was when i'm currently in the highest level of math ap calc bc and told me to work on some very um very how do i say this the very low English standards for where I am considering I've been AP English so I the SAT is not it's it's not an um a a valid way to measure student intelligence and so many kids still take it and yes the UCs have got test optional and oh yeah even the UCs in I believe it was oh yeah it was on March 26 2020 the UCs board voted 23 to 0 to um, eliminate SAT and ASCT scores because of their of other like factors that could impact like race, socioeconomic status, et cetera, et cetera, and the implicit bias that was there. Um, but it's it's very impactful to a lot of students. Oh, and for like there are sites I forgot the name of one, but these sites do exist of where they'll rate like schools. I think I think it's great schools or something like that. But basically, the, the communities that have the great, have really good schools, supposedly, um, their houses and, like, the living expense tends to be, tends to skyrocket around those same areas. 
And the schools that, that have the highest standardized test scores, and not even with the SAT or anything, with just like the CASP, because we're taking that next week. Very fun. But anyways, the schools that have the highest testing rates, or the, I mean, sorry, the highest test scores, they're the ones who receive the more funding, while the schools with the lower test scores, they receive less funding when they're the ones who do need it. So they can raise those test scores, but it's an inverse relationship that I guess the ed code or whatever doesn't want to recognize. But um, back to this great schools organization thing, they would rate schools solely based off of standardized test scores. And I think we've just established as to why standardized test scores are not a good measure because if the UC system can, um, the UC system can remove it, then I guess, I don't even know, but, <sighs> um, and also students, it was compared because if students, if Hispanic and black students were picked off of their GPAs rather than their SAT scores, the diversity among college campuses would like drastically increase. It would drastically, because if it was solely based off of GPA, many, God, many professors, studies, and other data has argued that GPAs, high school GPAs are a better indicator of performance in college than the standard aptitude test, or as we commonly know, the SAT. <sighs> so that should, well, I guess it is. It's a more valid way to measure student ability and which is funny because on recently on the AP Spanish test because uh, I took the Spanish lang test on Wednesday and our um oh it's pretty okay I'm gonna talk about this it was the, our essay prompt was on if was measuring if what well, okay was determining if intellectual capacity was the most important factor in academic success and to be honest no and I think a really good indicator of that or a really good example of that is the SAT it, it kind of, I mean, I looked at my score, it really kind of tore me down and kind of diminished me. But deep down inside, I knew like, wait, no, I'm, I'm, I'm smarter than this. I don't need like a four, uh, four numbers on a page to tell me how, I was like, I don't need to use those four numbers as a small measure of my intelligence. I mean, the proof is in my class placement of where I am, what I'm doing. But for a lot of students, they're not given that same thing or they don't have that same push or that same kind of mindset, which is really damaging. But now moving on to graduation rates among different separate minority groups. So these statistics may be astounding, but 6.6% of college graduates are Asian American or of Asian American Pacific Islander descent, or sorry, heritage, ethnicity. 11.1% um, of college graduates are black, 13.1% of college graduates are Latino, and 62.2% of college graduates are white. That is over half and nearing two-thirds of, of graduates being white. So, um, I, I don't think affirmative action is what is preventing pr the, pr their proponents of, a pr okay, is preventing white proponents of affirmative action. I, I don't think that's what's causing their, their non-admission rates as, especially displayed in Fisher versus Texas of where the where the court judge literally upheld the decision of I mean literally supported Texas's decision to maintain race-based or to, to keep race in their admissions process and okay so out of these statistics with a 6.6% 11.1 etc out of that whole 100% American um, native slash Alaska native that those only comprise 0.61 percent 
0.61 that is an astonishingly tiny number and yes some may argue you know the populations aren't that big or that but then you can also look at the history because to be honest the proof always lies in the history the proof how these groups have been created over time how legislation has affected them how different societal factors how um it's called socio i might have already been but how socioeconomic factors have all how they've become blend to affect everybody because it's not just an isolated occurrence or it's not just an isolated incident, et cetera. No, everything is always connected. <laughs> but, um, oh yeah, and then 6.6% are non-residents or 6.7% are about non-residents. So now I'm gonna move on to introducing the organization that I'm gonna be doing um, some explanations on. Well, I'm gonna introduce the organization that I'm gonna be doing some connecting with and really like link the two between all these court cases and all these um, all these, all this rad, raw data I've kind of just lumped on, but kind of really meshing everything together. So with these connections also comes solidarity, practices, and reimagination. And I swear to God, those will connect to these organs to this organization. Um, what's it called? Well, okay, it would probably help if I introduce this organization. I should probably do that. So the organization is the AA. AED or the American Association for Access, Equity, and Diversity. They are a 501c6 membership organization and their kind of motto, but they have a separate slogan from this, but they kind of emphasize that the essence of affirmative action is opportunity. And they were founded in 1974 and they started out as the American Association for Affirmative Action. And they currently specialize in affirmative action, equal opportunity, and diversity. And what they kind of do is they train others. So like they hold trainings for other teachers um, in some like for some class, like classroom teachers, sorry, professionals, um, et cetera. They just educate the public. They also hold very educated webinars and their members include institutional equity professionals um, like diverse DEI or diversity and equity um, people. And like there's one in our district, there's some in other districts too. title um title coordinators inclusive excellence diversity and inclusion staff etc so that's kind of what they do and um the director she has a jurist doctorate so she is very accredited and so now actually solidarity practice reimagination and connecting and bridging kind of the i guess the gap between them and so the first term i would like to define is solidarity so as defined by the open education sociology dictionary the ties, the solidarity is the, uh, solidarity is defined by the ties that bind people together in a group or society and their sense of connection to each other. So when I think of solidarity, I think of, I really think of intersectionality. That is quite literally the first thing that comes to mind. So intersectionality across from Latino groups in between black groups and, um, and I also think of the, the matrix of, what is it? The, the matrix of identity it identifies that you can also that you can not identifies it it helps you acknowledge that you can have privilege and still be oppressed at the same time like for example i am very very privileged to be here in the united states but yet again i'm also a brown i'm brown so that kind of it, it's about acknowledging that you can have you can fit into more than one category and it's really just kind of about i'd say diminishing diminishing those categories but solidarity really lies between unity that that's that's a really good word to condense in or i even the work of yuri kochiyama and grace lee boggs they worked with the black panthers they've met with angela davis etc and they've actually only met once 
but their work is so influential in the fact that they were two Asian women who fought so hard in the labor struggle, in the um, labor struggle, in the Latino struggle, the fight for Asian American rights. So that's what I think of when solidarity comes to mind. Now, how does this connect to AAAED? They, AAAED, they have worked for more than people of color. They have worked for really all affirmative action stands for. So that means um, veterans, women, AKA Mrs. Fisher, white, even white women, <laughs> but they have worked across different groups. And it's not just, I guess, to put it bluntly, it's not just, they're not just working for brown people. Like they affect, I mean, they assist many other groups and that is a such a key part of solidarity. So now moving on to Praxis, such my favorite one. And as defined by the legendary Paulo Freire, um, Praxis is reflection and action upon the world in order to transform it. So in English, I'm kidding. So what that really means, or to kind of break it, break that down, it's the process by which theory is embodied or acted out, act, uh, acted out. And for me, when I think of that, I think of Nahuyolin and the fourth Texcalipocas, which are Texcalipoca, Quetzalcoa, Chipetotec, and Huitzilopochtli. And it's this process of reflection and, and, and enacting something. So it's, for example, oh God, what this would be like, it was, it would be, I think ethics is actually a great example of praxis. We are absorbing, I guess maybe absorbing is bad. We are learning from the past and enacting it now. So that's like a great definition of praxis or, you know, even if you read political theory, if you read Marx, if you read Engels, if you read Hegel, um, if you read any of these authors, or even Angela Davis, gotta have women, race, and class sitting next to me, if you read any of these books and he puts any form of their, um, what's it called, any form of their theory or critical theory, whatever, if they put any of that into action, that is a form of praxis. And I do believe Paulo Freire's most famous form of praxis is um or i guess not maybe most famous form but he really worked for pedagogy like an egalitarian society where we are all valued the same there is no high like yeah i guess there's there's no really hierarchy and in a classroom that means having people having respect for each other and i think that's where we we take a lot of in lakesh from like i'm not saying obviously in lakesh wasn't based off of paulo freya but you can see the connections between them because in in lakesh you're treating someone else how you treat yourself and you're enacting your ideology or you're, you're enacting that on others. And it's a practice of your own theory, hence praxis. And now how does AAED embody this? They continue the process. They, they take literally the words of the law and they enact it and they strive for a better society where there is equal opportunity so like school like i mentioned earlier schools workplaces etc professional spaces they even hold webinars to be more accessible and they hold conferences as well i believe it's once a year like their big conference and now reimagination this is on how you think to go forward because i couldn't really find a very like very solidified definition but the best one i could kind of come up with just off of my own knowledge was just thinking of really just the future kind of, but like not just totally floating, I guess, not not floating, but a, a, like a guided way of the future and being open to things, but not being so, being open and focused at the same time. <laughs> I don't know how else to explain it, but I also associate it with Hegel philosophy, um, it, which kind of states that every idea contains its opposite and working through the vices leads you to the truth. So Hegel, he was a dude during the um, French Revolution and the Reign of Terror under Robespierre and the Jacobins. And his kind of 
his theory and that type of philosophy was adopted by a lot of people like Marx, um, what's it called? Grace Lee Boggs. Oh, I love Grace Lee Boggs. She was born in, into an immigrant family and she got her doctorate. I mean, she got, sorry, she got her PhD. Well, yeah, she got her PhD and she adopted a lot of Hegel philosophy as well. Really that I like that, that whole thing about if you work through it, then you'll find the answer. You have to go through it. And it's a whole process of reflection. And yet again, that also reminds me of the four pillars of Tetzcalipoca or the Nawiolin. It really connects together. It's, it's how much, how many similarities are and how many little connections there are between everything is absolutely mind blowing. But um, the policies that AAD stands for, AAAED, <laughs> how they stand for and how that connects back to reimagination. So at the core of affirmative action, I've stated this before, it's opportunity. It's opportunity for everybody to get a fair chance because the American dream, God, I have to believe that one more time. The American dream is that everybody gets a fair chance to pull themselves up by the bootstraps when in reality, if you're an immigrant, you get tossed into the belly of the beast and well, we know what happens next. So the cost of affirmative action is equal opportunity and diversifying spaces that previously were just elite that were reserved for the elite and reserved for well who was in the elite white people so now they strive towards well they've strived towards equal yeah i just said that i guess and they want to give minorities a fair chance because at the base of democracy is a multicultural society there's this like well i guess this kind of connects with imagination but there was this one ap lang prompt it was for rhetorical analysis no it was for synthesis my bad and it stood out so like it stood out so much to me because it was talking about the value of libraries if you should close them. And on one side, it was arguing, like, the rise of ebooks, but then it was also arguing, like, the, um, what's it called? How, like, libraries and books are becoming, like, physical books are becoming obsolete. And a big thing also was like, wait, <laughs> libraries are, I, I keep forgetting who quoted this, but it was, it was talking, the quote, um, was emphasizing how libraries were the places where democracy was formed, where democracy grows, where democracy, you know, where, where, oh, was that a Greek philosopher? Beyond the point, but, you know, it's, libraries are the place where knowledge happens. And there are more prisons than schools in the, or than colleges, at least from what I can remember. There are more in the United States, so not a shocker. But, um, I think that's a good step into reimagination is, I'd say, libraries, Sorry, I meant libraries, not prisons. But yeah, that was my analysis on the AAAED, Solidarity, Praxis, and Reimagination. Well, I meant the American Association for Access, Equity, and Diversity with um, a little bit of context and analyzing it and connecting it to Solidarity, Praxis, and Reimagination with the statistics and everything from College Board, the word, oh God, I'm from Paulo Freire, but from Paulo Freire. So, yeah, anyways, have a good night, and I'll be back next time. Yeah.